hey, let's have a personal minute for a moment, just me and you. What do you think my job is? I mean, I have the greatest job in the world. I get to be pastor of New Spring Church. This is my 32nd year. I mean, there's a, there's a leadership side to it. There's a management side. I manage a staff. I cast vision. But truthfully, you're probably not going to see that in action. You'll see the effects of it maybe. Our staff and our board see that probably a lot more closely. You're going to see me primarily as what the Bible calls a preacher of the gospel. So in that particular aspect, how would you, how would you define my job? Somebody could say, well, Mark, you... You sort of, in a way, answer to us as a communicator and as a pastor. But i got to tell you something, just keeping it real, you guys make that too easy. I mean, as I said, I'm in my 32nd year here, and no pastor that I know of has ever been treated better than this church has treated me. If anything, I think you're too easy on me. I think you love me too much. So, honestly, that's not hard. That's a joy. But I think you understand that I don't do this job because I woke up one day and decided I wanted to be a pastor. The truth be told, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be an attorney and go into broadcast journalism and then politics. That's stupid. (laughs) I mean, the lawyer part's fine, but I, and I think about all these years of broadcasting here at New Spring on television and used to be radio. I think well, I've had about all the broadcasting I want, and I pastored a Baptist church for a lot of years. I definitely had all the politics I wanted. <laughs> the, Bible, the Bible says my job is to preach the word in season and out of season. You know what that means? That means I'm to preach the word of God when it's popular and when it's not popular. But there's perhaps, a more, there's perhaps a more serious statement that the Bible makes about my job and, and how you should regard me as a pastor and what my job is. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that you should listen when I preach the word, not listen to my opinions, but listen when I preach the word for this reason, because the Bible says, speaking of pastors, they watch for your soul. And that's my job. In other words, when I preach the word of God, I realize that my my job, in a way, is even more critical than a brain surgeon who is watching out for your body. I am watching out for your soul. And as I said a moment ago, you guys are way too good to me because, you know, you say so many kind things to me. And and I'm human enough that I love it when, you know, you slap me on the back and say, hey, Mark, you did your job today. I mean, there's so so many applications of that statement, but it means a lot to me. But you have to know, as much as I appreciate that, there's something I want even more. Two seconds after you die, I want you to wake up in eternity and say, Mark did his job. And that is what my job is. And it's why I couldn't care less for being politically correct. Because, see, being politically correct in this world won't get you anywhere when you leave this life. You better be soul correct. We talked about that the last time I talked because we said, what is a person profited? That was a God question. What would a person be profited if they gained the whole world and lose their own soul? There are two things that terrify me for New Spring Church. 
Number one, I think we're in the very last days before Jesus comes back, and I know what the Bible has to say about those last days. The Bible says that the time will come when people will not listen to true teaching, and there's kind of a humorous statement. It says they will pile up teachers who have itching ears. In other words, they want the praise of people. They, and evidently piling them up means they're, they're in great supply. There will be teachers who will tell people what they want to hear. And I don't want to do that because I understand that I have a responsibility. You understand. Here's the thing. You know, you say, well, Mark, what is, does it bother you when people criticize you and say that you're out of step with the times? No, let me tell you what bothers me. There's going to be a day when I'm going to go one-on-one with the creator of the universe, and I promise you that will not be a time when I'll be into freelancing, and neither will you. And so today, as we deal with this last question that God asked, I, I, I guess you can tell already it's going to be a question that's going to challenge us. And here is the thing that makes the here's the thing that makes my job, let's just say, interesting. Most God truths are counterintuitive. You know that? In other words, most God truths you're not going to come about on your own. In fact, the truth of the matter is, most God truths are the very opposite of what our way of thinking is. That's the reason why the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8, that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So consequently, if we approach God based on what we presume about him, we'll almost always be wrong. For instance, Jesus tells us that the way up, if you want to be elevated, then you become everybody's servant. The Bible says if you want to receive, then you give. Scripture tells us that although we might think there are many ways to God, the Bible says, and we just sang this in a song a moment ago, Acts 4.12 says there's only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And we're inclined to think that our getting into heaven is based on our performance, and yet the Bible says it's based completely on Jesus' performance for us. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying most God truths are counterintuitive, and that's one reason why when a person stands to do what I do, his message or her message could be deemed out of step because God's truths are so counterintuitive to our truths. Well, I don't think you need me to tell you that we have an election coming up. And I'm not going to ask you your response, but I'm, incl- I'm curious about it. I mean, I almost wonder how many of you are afraid of what's going to happen or how many of you can't bear to see what's going to happen or how many of you are just sick of the whole thing. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you something. I've never talked about politics, and I'm not going to start. I don't endorse candidates because my job is not to get you ready for an election. My job is to get you ready for a coronation. And in the crazy world that we're living in, I want you to to do something today. I want you to get your eyes off this plane, and I want you to get your eyes on this plane. Because instead of looking at the craziness going on in our world, we need to look toward the heavens. and look to. Because see, here's the thing. God is always up to something. Isn't that good to know? I mean, if the world goes completely crazy, God is always up to something. So today I want to ask you to take your Bible, if you have an electronic device, fire up your Bible app to Psalm chapter 2. I want to take you to the biggest book of the Bible. The book of Psalms has 150 chapters. Really, Psalms mean songs, so the book of Psalms is the song book of the Bible. And um, there are all kinds of songs. In fact, there are blues songs in the Psalms. We had a series here years ago, probably can still order it if you want it, called Blues. And we looked at some of the lament psalms or the blues songs in the Bible. But the psalms that intrigue me the most are what we call messianic psalms. Most of the psalms were written about 1,000 B.C., which means roughly 1,000 years before Jesus was born, the psalms were written. But what intrigues me is a number of the psalms were written about Jesus. 
In fact, most of you, the most well-known psalm, most of you will know, is Psalm 23. What you might not know is that Psalm 23 is the middle psalm of a trilogy of, of messianic psalms that actually talk about Jesus. Paul will say in the New Testament that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, Psalm 22 is about the death of Jesus. Psalm 23 is about the burial of Jesus or, the, or his time before he rose. And Psalm 24 is about the resurrection. In fact, what's really interesting about Psalm 22, and we won't look at a whole lot of the psalm, but it's the most graphic depiction of crucifixion you'll ever see. And the irony of that is it was written 300 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. Let me show you a couple things. And this is not what we're talking about today. I just want to show you that some of the psalms are messianic. Psalm 22:16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Well, the Jewish way of, of execution was stoning. How different it would be to write, they pierced my hands and my feet, a thousand years before Jesus was born. Psalm 22:1, the psalmist cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus cried out on the cross. I told you Psalm 24 was about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Look at this. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So this is all about heaven opening up when Jesus ascends back into heaven. In fact, if you want to look at Psalm chapter 16, you'll find this statement. The Bible says, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see corruption. Well, who was in the grave not long enough for his body to decompose? Jesus. So don't you find it significant that a thousand years before Jesus was born, you have all these messianic psalms. But my personal favorite psalm is Psalm 2. And the reason for that is, it is, well, two reasons, really. It's totally messianic. It's all about Jesus. And the second reason is, I don't think it was written about Jesus' first coming. I think it was written about Jesus' next coming. And because of that, I really think Psalm 2 is written for the generation that you and I live in. So even though it's been 3,000 years since this song was written, I think it's a song about where we are right now. And with that in mind, I think we should, we should spend some time talking about it. It's a, psalm, a song that's going to address the times that we live in. Now let's, think, let's talk for a moment about that. When you look at America today, or the world, how would you assess what's going on? Well, I mean, the first thing I notice clearly is that God, and specifically Jesus, is becoming, are becoming less and less popular. In fact, every time I open up a news site or open up any kind of periodical, it looks like people are inventing another way to flip God off with both hands. I was just reading about... <laughs> a VA waiting room in Chillicothe, Ohio, and they removed the Bible because they thought it might intimidate the, the veterans who were there for health services. Isn't that crazy? I mean, our motto is in God we trust, but the idea is you can't have a Bible in a waiting room which would be picked up voluntarily in the first place. So it's, it's, it's very clear. We, we, we have a growing hatred for God and for, for good. And then the second thing I see, especially in relationship to Americans, it seems like Americans are confused. There's an inability to determine what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. And when Americans are confronted with this, they say, well, I don't judge, as if to say, I don't think there is such a thing as good or I don't think there is such a thing as bad. This didn't happen in America. It happened in Canada. But I was reading about a professor named Dr. Stephen Alexander who was in a totally secular university. But he was... He had a particular, uh, he had a senior philosophy class, and they were doing a section on ethics. And so what he was trying to do was to get the class to come to um, consensus on what would be a baseline 
of morality. In other words, something so egregious, so awful that everybody, no matter where they came from, what their spectrum, uh, or what their what, what spectrum they, what part of the spectrum they came from in regard to ethics, something so bad that everybody would say this is morally bad. So he showed them the story of an Afghani teenager named Bibi Aisha. And this young lady was forced into marriage to a Taliban fighter who abused her and kept her out with his dogs, with his animals. And when she ran away from this horrific treatment, her family found out about it, and they found her. They cut off her nose, cut off her ears, and left her up in the mountains to die. Fortunately, she was rescued, taken to an American hospital where her life was saved. Dr. Alexander thought this is such a horrible, horrible story that at least everybody in his classroom could agree that this is morally bad, and at least they could work from that baseline. He even showed them pictures of Aisha's haunting eyes and the hole where her nose was and the holes where her ears were. Some of the kids couldn't even lift their eyes to see it. And so at that point, he expected everybody in the class would say, that is bad. He said, I'd expected strong aversion, but that's not what I got. Instead, they became confused. They seemed not to know what to think. They spoke timorously, afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation originating in a different culture. They said, we might not like it, but maybe over there it's okay. Another said it's just wrong to judge other cultures. Now, we're talking about a young lady who was forced into marriage, abused, left with the animals, had her nose chopped off and her ears chopped off, and yet you had students who were saying, well, maybe that's okay in another culture. This is what's troubling me. We live in a world today where people say, I don't judge. Now, that's a fair statement and a good statement, because if we mean by not judging that we don't evaluate someone's worth... Well, that's a good statement because we, we should not judge that. That's up to God. But if we can't tell the difference between right and wrong, that's not being non-judgmental. As I shared with you the other day, that is the threshold standard for being criminally insane is not to know the difference between right and wrong. And that's what scares me. So when I look at the world today, I see, first of all, I see a world that is pushing God and Jesus out more and more, and I see a world that's confused and unable to understand what is good and what is bad, what is worthwhile and what is not worthwhile. Thirdly, I see a mess. You know, we talk about who's going to get elected. I think we're in such a big mess. I'm not sure any human being has got a solution for the mess this world is in. And then finally, I, and I'm a student of history. I've been a student of history of all my life. I have never seen a global situation where there is such a leadership vacuum as there is in our world today. So when I look at the world, that's what I see. What do you see? I mean, where would you go for analysis? If you wanted to analyze what's going on in our world, some of us would go to the Wall Street Journal, others of us would go uh, to a news organ, some of us would go to talk radio, some of us would go to late night comedy, some of us would go to Facebook to see what our friends are posting about what's going on in the world. But wouldn't you like to know what God thinks? When God looks down at 21st century America, when God looks at the world, what do you think God's take would be? Well, our series is called When God Asks Questions, and you might be surprised to know that when God looks at the world that you and I live in today, his analysis takes the form of a couple of questions. In Psalm chapter 2, God wants to know two things. He wants to know, well, let me read this to you. Why are the nations, that means people all over the planet, why are people everywhere so angry? Now, the, the Hebrew word there means agitated. Do you feel that out there? 
I mean, how many people do you run into that just like have a hair trigger? I mean, you don't, you don't even have to, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're driving and you just, I guess, do something that they don't understand. And next thing you know, they're just raging at you. And God is looking down at the earth saying, why is everybody so agitated? And then the second question he has is, why do the leaders come up with plans that go nowhere? Now, if we stop the sermon right now, we could draw one conclusion as God looks at our world. Is that God is a good God? Because God is looking down from heaven saying, I wish everybody wasn't so angry. And I wish leaders would come up with plans that actually serve people's interests. I mean, if you want to just draw a bottom line to this, a subtotal, what God is saying is things don't have to be the way they are. So God is a loving God. But the problem is when we go to verse 2, we see that the world doesn't see God as a loving God. They don't see him as a person who wants things to be better. Because in in the second part of this chapter, in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against America? No. Against the Lord. Now, if when you look at Lord there, notice that it's in all caps. In the Hebrew Bible, that means Jehovah God. That's God the Father. They plot together against Jehovah and against his anointed one. The word Messiah actually means anointed one. So consequently, a thousand years before Jesus was born, the psalmist wrote, the world plots, leaders plot against Jehovah God and against Jesus. So here's their message. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. So in a world where people are angry and leaders are coming up with plans that lead nowhere, instead of turning to God and asking God for his advice, they flip God off and say, God, you are the problem. And we see that happening in our world today. And on top of that, we sort of get their attitude toward God because they look at God's plans, they look at God's instructions for us, and they see them, quote, as chains and slavery. I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a country that is changing God's guidelines as fast as possible. It's happening all the time. I mean, I get, I get interviewed by media types, and they'll either stick a microphone in my face or they'll be writing it or they'll be taking notes and interviewing me. And here's what the question they'll ask me. I want to make sure I get this right. How is your church going to react to evolving viewpoints? In other words, you're a church, you have a message. How is your church going to react to evolving viewpoints? Well, guys, it's not evolving viewpoints. It's a full-on revolution. Let me read it with me again. The Bible says, the kings of this earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from God. And the trouble that I have, that I see, is it's not just outside the church, it's inside the church. I mean, there's a whole generation of Christians who seem to be confused about who God is. I read the results of a poll that was taken last year, and there were statements that were given to all Americans, but the responses were categorized according to all adult Americans and practicing Christians. Listen to the first statement. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Now, according to the Bible, the Bible says he who trusts his own heart is a fool. I mean, and here's the thing. If I looked within myself to find myself, I would be depressed beyond measure. 
I need to look to God because God tells me I'm loved. God tells me he created me. God tells me there's a purpose for my life. God tells me he's put a calling on my life, and I'm an everlasting soul that's going to be with him forever. I get that from God. I don't get that from looking within. When I look within, Mark gets depressed. But look at this. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 91% of U.S. Americans, adults, said that was true. 76% of practicing Christians so that's a true statement. People should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices. 89% agreed. 76% of Christians agreed. I don't even like my lifestyle choices sometimes. I mean, I've got friends in my life that I've, I've charged, not given permission, but charged. If you see me going the wrong direction, you know, confront me. How insane is that to say people should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices? Parents, how do you feel about that with your teenagers? 89% of adult Americans agreed. 76% of Christians agreed. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 86% agreed. 72% of Christians agreed. Highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 84% 84% agreed, 66% of Christians who are supposed to know about eternity agreed with that statement. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of Americans agreed, 61% of Christians agreed. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 69% of American adults agreed, 40% of Christians agreed. I guess that would take, that would take in adultery, wouldn't it? When I get asked, how are you going to react to evolving ideas, I think a lot of American Christians have already decided how they're going to react. They're not going to go with God. But for me, this whole talk is not about how I'm going to react to what's going on in the world and how you're going to react to it. The question is, how does God react to it? Because we just saw that the leaders of this earth plot against God and say, we're going to throw off his chains and we're going to get rid of the slavery to God, which is going on right now. So is God up in heaven saying, oh, no, 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 I'm so sorry. I made this world a particular way and people will not go in my direction, so I guess I'm going to have to go to plan B. Read with me. Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, then he whose seat, that means he's not even standing up. Then he whose seat in the heavens will be laughing. The Lord will make sport of them. Now, make sport there. Have you ever, like, I hate to ask this, but have you ever, like, made fun of somebody by repeating what they said in kind of a sarcastic way? In other words, when the world is saying, God, we're going to get rid of you and we're going to throw off your chains, God is saying, oh, yeah, you're going to throw off my chains. I remember when I was in high school. I'm an old man now, but, you know, all of you who are my age around, you know that you can remember stuff in high school better than you can remember stuff last week. I mean, isn't it true the craziest stuff happens to you when you're in high school? Um. And this is TMI, but I actually became worship leader of my church when I was 15. Uh, we lost our worship pastor, and the board went to my dad and said, well, hey, Mark has audited some conducting courses. Why, do, why can't Mark be our worship leader? So at 15 years old, I became worship leader of my church. So when I got my driver's license, dad decided, well, hey, you're 16 years old. If you're leading worship, you can make hospital visits. And I used to say to my dad, I, there are places that say if you're under 18, you can't go in. Dad said, hey, wear a suit. Look down, walk fast, act like you know where you're going. Nobody will ever stop you. (laughs) And he was right. Now, it was the early 70s, and everybody looked the same, boys and girls back then. We all wore the same thing. We all wore blue jeans and white T-shirts and combed our hair down the middle. 
You ever look into a yearbook, you know, that's what everybody looks like. But because I'd gotten into a world of adults, I mean, I started like dressing a little different. So, I mean, I, I didn't wear a suit or anything. I just wore to school. I'd have nice bell-bottom jeans. I'd have nice shirts, paisley, of course. And, <laughs> um, and you have to understand, I went to a large high school, 4,000 students, and drugs are everywhere. And uh, the police department back in those days did something creative. They would sometimes find young-looking officers, and they would have them infiltrate the schools. They were narcs. They were narcotic agents. And in a school so big where a lot of people didn't know each other, the word got out that I was a narc. <laughs> it's a miracle I survived. <laughs> but all of a sudden, I had this pothead. For all of you youngest, somebody stay stoned on marijuana. Um, I had this pothead. I mean, he, he, he didn't weigh like 80 pounds soaking wet. A good wind would have blown him over. I mean, he told a friend of mine, he smoked 12 joints. That's marijuana cigarettes. He, he told a friend he smoked 12 joints before school. That will give you some idea. Pasty white. I mean, just looked like a ghost. All of a sudden, he, I didn't even know him. He started coming up to me and saying, Hoover, I'm going to whip your donkey. And uh, Not quite that, but close. <laughs> And he would say, you show up after school. And I'd show up, and he didn't show up. And so after a while, I mean, I wasn't scared of him. He's like, he coming up to me and said, I'm just going to whip you. And I'd say, oh, yeah, you're going to. Well, that's what God's doing. All these people in our world today that are saying, we're going to get rid of God. God's like, yeah, right. He's not worried. He's not looking for plan B. But this is where it gets challenging for me. Because, see, I've got to show you a different side of God. The Bible says, then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, and this is, look at this, I have installed my king. God is speaking about his son, Jesus Christ. He is saying, look, in my mind, he's already installed. And then Jesus begins to speak. He said, I will tell the promise that the Lord made to me, Jehovah made to me. You are my son. Today I've become your father. It doesn't mean he became the father. It just means he installed him. Ask me for the nations and every nation on the earth will belong to you. So now God is beginning to give us advice now in chapter 2, verse 10. Be smart, all you rulers, and pay close attention. Serve and honor the Lord. Be glad and tremble. Show respect to his son. Because if you don't, the Lord might become furious and suddenly destroy you. But he blesses and protects everyone who runs to him. Here's my issue today, and this is the reason why I began the sermon like I did. There are a lot of people that when they think about God, they will say something like this to me. God is loving, so consequently God approves of anything. God is loving. God is a loving God, so therefore he's okay with anything anybody wants to do. I remember in 2013... My dad was dying. It was in June of that year. He would die the next month. I had to go to Texas, and I can't recall what all I had going on, but I had to do something in Dallas, and then I had to go to South Texas. And so I needed to get from I-35 East to uh, I-35 West, and I didn't want to drive through Fort Worth. And so I rem my first church when I was in college was in a little town called Mansfield, south of Fort Worth, and I remember there was a little country highway south of Fort Worth that went from like Mansfield over to Rendon and Retta and over to Burleson, and I thought, I'm just going to get on that highway and drive over there. Well, while I was going through Rendon, um, I came upon what had been a horrific accident scene. Police, it must have happened the night before. Police were still there. There was debris strewn everywhere. And I told Mary Alice, something bad happened here. 
What I didn't know was it was going to be a national story and a new word was going to come out of that accident. What had happened the night before was there was a woman who was getting off work late at night and she, her tire blew and, and it caused her to run off the road and clip a mailbox and, and her car stalled kind of in the part of the front yard of some people there. And so some of the neighbors came out to help her. And then a youth pastor from Burleson who had been at um, a graduation party for his son who had graduated that night, he stopped to help, to assist, left his boys in the, in the truck, told them to keep their seatbelt fastened, but he got down to try to help this woman. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, a 16-year-old boy named Ethan Crouch, who was driving Ford F-350 that his father had given him, had four kids in the cab and two kids in the bed of a pickup truck, came along at 70 miles an hour. Later, they would determine that Ethan Crouch's blood alcohol limit was .29, which is three times the legal limit in Texas. But he was so drunk and high on drugs, he didn't even see what was going on, and he plowed right into that. They said it looked more like a plane crash than an automobile accident. Four people were killed, including the youth pastor and the neighbors who had come out to help and the woman whose truck had stalled. Six people were injured and two people were critically injured. Now, the reason this became a national story is that when this boy went to trial, it's because his parents were so wealthy, they were able to hire the best lawyers. And his lawyers brought in a psychologist who testified for the defense team. And the lawyer said that the reason why Ethan had done what he did was because his parents were too permissive and they had enabled him because of their wealth to do things that brought about no accountability. And the word that came out of that trial was, (laughs) the psychologist said he suffered from affluenza. Remember that? Yeah, that was the wreck I stumbled on. See, here's the thing. They, in fact, D Magazine, which is the magazine for Dallas, this is a great magazine. D Magazine did an article on them called The Worst Parents in the World. But here's the thing. <laughs> Those parents actually acted out how a lot of people see God. In other words, God is so benevolent. He is the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky. He is okay with anything anybody wants to do. That would make him a despicable parent and a despicable God, and that is not who he is. And no, that is not what God is loving means. God is a loving God, and he loves you enough that he put his son on a cross, but he's not up in heaven saying anything anybody wants to do is okay because I'm a loving God. And I'm watching for your soul right now. When the Bible says the kings of the world plot against God, we don't live in a world of kings anymore. The word for kings really just means power brokers. Media, entertainment, organized religion, government. In other words, the powerful people basically say, we want God out of our lives so that we can do anything we want to do, so that we can decide what is right and wrong. How does that sound for you? To be able to live a life where you can do anything you want to do, to live a life where you can decide what is right and what is wrong, how how does that sound? I think if you're a 21st century American, it sounds like that's the way life is supposed to be. Listen, guys, I'm not trying to freak you out or anything, but there are times when it's like God just sort of leans on me. He doesn't like strike me with lightning, but he just sort of leans on me saying, Mark, you've got to get this message out. And I don't know if it's because we're in the last days. I don't know if it's just important to God that I get this out. But the one thing that I've seen so very clearly as I've studied the word and prayed about this, the idea of living in such a way where you do anything you want to do and you become the final arbiter of what is right and wrong, that is the quintessential definition of sin. 
See, here's the thing. When we think about sins, we think about acting out sexually, or we think about stealing, or lying, or cheating, or shooting drugs, or pride, or anger. We tend to think of those things as sins. What you must understand is that our problem is not sins. Our problem is sin. All of those things are just symptoms of sin. See, sin is looking at life and saying, I'm going to live the way I want to live. Let me read this to you from the scripture. In Isaiah chapter 53, where the writer is writing about why Jesus died for us, the Bible says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's the definition of sin. When the kings of this world, the power brokers say, we're going to get rid of God so we can live any way we want to live, basically they're saying, we are choosing sin. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came to save us from our sin. But the fact that power brokers want to live this way reminds me of why it seems like in the least empowered part of our world, people find it easy to come to God, and in the most empowered part of our world, which would be the United States, People have a greater challenge. I was preaching through the Caribbean one time, and it surely wasn't a vacation because it was July. And, um, and, and I don't know how many of you have been to the islands, but there's usually a little slip of resorts on the beach, and then you get behind that, and it's just abject poverty. And so I was in the abject poverty part of the islands, and I was just horrified at how impoverished a lot of those people are. You see their houses, no doors, no windows, and it's just terrible. But I remember we came up in the back of an island. We came across a stand of a woman who was selling some beautiful, highly colored, multicolored, I don't know if they were scarves or what, but she just had a stand, a little lean-to out there. And I remember stopping and thinking, I wonder if this woman has money for dinner tonight. Now, she did after I left. But <laughs> I will never forget she had the most well-worn, well-marked Bible I've ever seen in my life. See, that's the strange thing. Over in Africa and China and places where there's persecution, people find it easy to come to God. But in this empowered part of our world where you and I live, we have enough money and, and, and opportunity that we can pretty well live any way we want to live. And the tragedy of that is the definition of sin is just living the way you want to live. You say, well, Mark, it's my way. It feels right to me. It must be right. Well, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to people, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Remember, God truths tend to be counterintuitive. Jesus would put it this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He basically said there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow way that leads to everlasting life. I used to read that and think, well, okay, there's this big, broad road and people are on it, and there's this little narrow road. Well, technically, that's what he's saying. But why do you think the broad road is broad? It's just so many people living their own ways. And you know what? Satan, the enemy, he doesn't care whether your own way is sexual or money-loving or self-righteous religionist. He doesn't care what your own way is as long as it's your way. I have the good news of telling you that God loves you so much that when he offers you salvation, what he is saying to you is, I'm giving you an opportunity to get off your road and to get on my road. Here's the thing. 
If you wind up in heaven, there's a reason for that. Heaven is a destination. Roads lead to destinations. If you wind up in heaven, it's going to be because you're on the road that leads to heaven. If, God forbid, you should wind up in hell, it's not that God hates you. It's just you're on the road that led there. The roads lead to destinations. If I get on I-35 and I want to go to Austin and I get on I-35 North, I'm not going to Austin. I'm going to Kansas City. It doesn't matter how sincere I am. I'm just on the road that goes to Kansas City, and I can cry about not being in Austin all day long, but I was on the wrong road. And God is just saying, look, get off your road, get on my road. That's what salvation is all about. The reason why so many Christians agree with this crazy world instead of God is somehow they got the idea that maybe growing up in a Christian family makes you a Christian. Maybe going to church makes you a Christian, but none of those things make you a true Christian. The only way that you can become a Christian is to realize, God, I'm on the wrong road. I need to get off this road, and I need to get on your road. I can't be perfect. I can't live it, but let me just at least acknowledge my road isn't working, and my road's not going to the right place. So maybe I never will be a star in your sight, but just please let me get off my road and get on your road. That is why Jesus hung on the cross to deal with the fact that we can never live out God's perfection, but at least by the grace of God, we can get off the wrong road and we can get on the right road. But let me go somewhere. Let me go back to that thing where a lot of Christians disagree with God and agree with God's enemies. The problem with American Christians is so many of us don't want to get God on God's road. We want to get God on our road. There could even be somebody here, somebody in the North Auditorium, somebody watching on television or watching online, and that's the deal. The idea of accepting Jesus to you meant, I'm going to go on my road, and I'm going to get Jesus on my road. I'm going to juice up my road. And guys, i got to tell you, that, that, that doesn't work. God's not fooled. It's not about getting Jesus on Mark's road. It's about Mark getting on Jesus' road and saying, God, I'm wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. I'm a loser, and I'll never get a lot of things right, and I'm a screw-up, but please, just let me get off my road. I hate my road. I've lived long enough to have my way and realize that my way usually leans to not only hurting me but hurting other people. God, help me get off my road and help me get on your road. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if this was the last sermon, I hope it's not, but if this was the last sermon I ever preached, let me preach this today. By the grace of God, could you just reach out and sort of shake yourself by the emotional shoulders and say, in this crazy world that we live in that's going the wrong direction, let me get off this road and let me get on God's road. And if I have gotten off my road and gotten on God's road, let me stay on it. I mean, God, God loves you and you can never be lost again. But let me not waste any time bouncing back and forth between roads. Let me close with this. I love how the message gives us the end of Psalm 2. It says, so rebel kings, Americans, use your heads. Upstart judges, learn your lesson. Worship God in enduring embrace. Celebrate in trembling awe. Kiss Messiah. Your very lives are in danger, you know. His anger is about to explode. I love this line. But if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. Yeah. If you're ready to make a run for God, you're in a good place today. And by the way, I hope when we see each other in eternity, I hope today I can honestly say to you, I did my job.
It's not popular, and megachurch pastors who preach sermons like I preach, according to this world, are pretty stupid. And I may indeed be. But I'm watching for your soul and for mine. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I need to do that. I, need, I, I, I think I really understand for the first time that it's about getting off my road and trusting Jesus. Then do, do it with me. Let's pray. And I'll pray it slowly so you can decide if you want to say these words. And it's not the words that matter. It's how you feel in your heart. Okay? Here we go. Let's pray. Dear God, I am a sinner, which means basically I've gone my own way. I know that doesn't work. But I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sin. Get me off my road and put me on yours. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. So I want to worship him today as my Messiah and my King and my Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. You say, Mark, I just prayed, I don't know what happened to me. Well, I know, you know, it's, it's, so, it's such a small prayer that you could say, well, I'm not sure the biggest change in my life just happened. So here's what I want to do. I've, I've got a packet for you that's got a Bible, a nice Bible, and a book I wrote on the subject of what you do, when you, how to know for sure that you're going to heaven and what to do next. All you need to do is take your talk to us card, check the box that says, I pray to receive Christ, and go to guest services. There's one out here in the lobby of the South Auditorium. There's one around the corner from the North Auditorium. If you just go to guest services and say, I pray with Mark, they won't hassle you or stalk you or anything. They just want to give you this. Thank you guys so much for being here for ICT Weekend next weekend.